Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson and Leo Laporte. Episode 130 for February 7th, 2008. Listener feedback number 34. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for security now, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, I'm so glad to see Mr. Steve Gibson on the other side of the microphone. Hello, Steve. <laughs> hey, Leo. Great to be back with you once again. Separated. Episode 130, 130. 130. It's amazing. Separated wow. only by the state of California. I'm in the north. You're in the south. So, yep. I, so actually, if I were to see you across the microphone, it'd be very dim and tiny. Yeah, well, you'd have an exceedingly good eyesight. <laughs> actually, I think the curvature of the earth would completely preclude that. I, I mean, unless think you're right. You're a scientist at heart, and I you can't get away with any of this fantasy stuff with you. <laughs> None of that. Oh, I'm just finishing. Um, uh, not finishing. I'm really in the middle of Night's Dawn Trilogy. Actually, you can't finish it. It's the world's longest book, but Night's Dawn Trilogy, Peter Hamilton, really great. Oh, are you loving it? <clears throat> yeah. Well, it took Is a little it? while to get into it I could, because there's so many storylines in it. Yes. Yes. And yes, they're yes. very diverse storylines. Uh, you know, so it took me a little while to kind of start piecing it together, but that's part of its charm because once you do, I don't know how many pages in I am because the Kindle only t- gives you paragraph markings, but once you once you get a little far in on it, I'm three dots in, three or four dots in. And, oh, and you probably have like 20 dots to go. Oh, it's a big book. Yeah. Well, yeah. the Kindle it, always has the same number of dots. Have you noticed that? Yes. Although the, I mean, it is a proportional, right. it is a proportional display. Right. So, Hey, there's some cool Kindle hacks. I know, I think you mentioned this the other day, but do you, did you know about the one that, uh, when you turn the radio on and then go to the Kindle browser, if you press, uh, alt one, it'll open up the Google maps at your location. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very cool. It's cause it, because it's the self, well, it's at, at your location. It's the nearest cell site. I all the only thing I really want is an on-screen clock. I just, okay, that's one of the hacks. Yay! <laughs> I'll tell I'll, you. I'll, I'll look I'll it up ahead. and I'll tell you before before because uh, I don't have it right in front of me. But there is a a simple keystroke that will put a uh, a clock on the screen at the bottom of oh, the menu. No kidding. Yeah. So it's already built in there somewhere. It's just hidden. Exactly. There are no, you know the Kindle actually had a bunch of a surprisingly large number of undocumented. Um, uh, keystrokes. Well, you know, um, it's impossible to ever surprise you about anything going on in the industry. Uh, but I had a note here to mention to you that Amazon is buying Audible. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't surprise. I mean, that surprised me, but uh, yeah, we've known about that for a little while. And actually, uh, Audible is now a sponsor of this show as well. I'm happy to have them on board. Um, they're on every what? show. <laughs> what show? You mean security now? Security now. Oh, they're, no kidding. They're on every show on the Twit Network. They're big. In fact, the day before the announcement, I got a, a very nice email saying how happy they were, how they looked forward to 2008 and uh, and a great relationship. And they were going to renew through the rest of the year. And then the next day, Amazon buys them. Now, I don't know if that's, um, you know, how that's going to affect anything. 
So, right. but uh, nevertheless, it was, you know, a little bit of a surprise. So the guy you'd be interested in who hacked the Kindle. Actually, I'd love to get Amazon as a sponsor. Goodness knows Kindle should be advertising on this show. <laughs> Have you seen the count on, on my review on the on Amazon site? How many? It's it's like 11,000, I think. <laughs> it's way more than twice the number two review. Oh, so, wow. yeah. Well, well you'd, I, like, I you'd like this um, Kindle hack because uh, the guy who did it, and I'm still uh, Googling around to try to find. Oh, it's Igorsk. The guy who did it, uh, disis- he got the, uh, the, the ROM code, disassembled it. And figured it out. Oh, beautiful. So pure reverse engineering. Yeah. I mean, beautifully, beautifully done. Um, I, it's, 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 a, it's just really remarkable. He starts uh, by figuring out how to get root on it. Uh, and then he is able to download the code, disassemble it. And that's how he finds all these undocumented keyboard shortcuts so let me find the time one there's minesweeper in it by the way did you know that (laughs) (laughs) you know i may have run across this article because i I remember seeing you talked about it i think and i yeah i remember seeing a whole list of goodies but i did not it didn't click with me that a clock was was among them so maybe there's a newer list so alt okay there's a couple in your in the reader at home alt t shows the time do you have your kindle in front of you no i don't have it in front of me because it's very funny well, I won't tell you what happens. When you're reading, do an alt T. Oh, I'm going to okay. tell you. It doesn't show the time digitally. It spells it out. It says like half past six. Because ah. <laughs> you're reading. Yep. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Alt T. That's what you need to remember. So you, the people who did this clearly had some fun. Igorsk. Igorsk did it. And, uh, no, no. I mean, I mean the Amazon guys. Oh, who, there's who, tons of stuff in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't at Amazon. It was Lab 126. So if you go into settings and enter some numbers, you can see the lab 126 team members if you enter 126. <laughs> um, they clearly did. There's a lot of stuff in there uh, that is kind of not documented. So anyway, I just thought I'd pass that along. That's very cool. Yeah. We have uh, also a Starro back with us. So I'm going to do an Astaro commercial a little bit. But uh, do you have, before we do that, do you have any uh, addendum? Oh, and we should tell people this is a Q&A episode. Yep, Q&A episode. I got all kinds of stuff. I did want to mention that Yahoo joins the ranks of being an open ID authentication provider. Yes. Isn't that great news? Yep. So they're now supporting open ID, which I hope will do a lot to promote open ID. Unfortunately, they're only they're only a single factor authenticator. So, you know, they're not complete. They're not competing with VeriSign's VIP. And in fact, it'd be very cool if they were to add that to VeriSign. So if we if we've got Yahoo members who would who would consider using Yahoo um, as an open ID provider, you might drop Yahoo a little note through their support link and say, hey, how about adding VIP authentication? Because it's going to be you know even more secure that way, of course, as we all know. If Microsoft buys them, then who knows? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. So I mean, I, I'm actually yeah. a little disappointed. I hope that doesn't go through because I think. I like Yahoo, and I like their range of services, and I like their support for things like open source and open ID. And, of course, all that would change if they were a Microsoft company. Yeah, well, we've got, you know, Hungry Balmer is out scouting around trying to yeah. trying to get them. So yeah. he's trying to beat let's, Google is what he's trying not. to do. Yeah. Also, I have a couple of uh, addenda when you're done, yeah. so just to let you know. Okay, well, I've got. I did want to mention that I'm loving Jungle Disk. Uh, it, it just updated itself, uh, or told me that there was one. It's up to 1.50 C, and he's been fixing little things here and there. So, I mean, I'm just. I got my bill from Amazon for last month 
uh, 10 cents. <laughs> I know. I got three cents. And I have a ton <laughs> of stuff up there. And I mean, I just love it because I, I can, if there's something I'm that I absolutely like want to have universal access to, right. like I'll drop some, I just sent, I sent, I sent um, 120 megs up there because I don't, you know, I don't have my laptop with me, right. but when I, when, when I do next, I'll want to be able to, you know, yank that thing down from Amazon. So it's just sort of, you know, it's data storage in the sky and it's not very expensive. And Jungle Disk makes it look, it's web dev, right? So it makes it look like a mounted disk. Yes, um, under XP and Vista, yeah, that that the WebDAV client is built in, so you're able just to map a, it to a drive. I'm still using Windows 2000. Uh, I did find a, um, uh, I found a a product that allows that essentially adds that feature to Windows 2000. Although you, you, there is the ability right now just to browse to that sort of like a folder where you don't have a drive mapping, and I find that's just as convenient as having it as, as a drive letter. And, but it wouldn't be, however, if I needed to, like, automate right. things like use, you know, my own backup solution rather than the one that's built into Jungle Disk in order to do that. So, right. Yeah, if, yeah, because looking for a drive letter is so much easier. Every program can do that. Well, I've got two really fun uh, security event stories. Um, this one's just going to boggle people's minds. You know, I'm... It's it's funny. Years ago, many many years ago, uh, I remember refusing to talk to my attorney on my analog cell phone at the time because I knew that it wasn't secure, and that was probably my. my and he, I remember him thinking, "Come on, Steve." I said, "Nope, nope, nope, nope." I know I'm I'm in the car right now. I'll call you back when I get to the office because this is a radio and. You know, I'm not having a conversation with my attorney on, you know, on an analog cell phone. And so he's like, okay, fine. Well, call me back. <laughs> and you were um, right, by the way. I've talked to yes. many, many guys, many hackers who just kind of made a habit of listening into analog cell phone recording. Uh, oh, some, I mean, it's, you could have some fascinating things that you would overhear. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's like, you know, radio, I mean, I know that listeners of Security Now know how skeptical I've always been about radio. Well, this story that was that, that just surfaced um, just really drives us home. Uh, this was written. This was posted on darkreading.com by uh, Steve. Uh, uh, I'm going to wreck his name, uh, but I'm not. I'm sorry, Steve, and I'm trying not to. It's uh, Stasiconis something. Uh, Stace. Stasiakonis something. Anyway, he's a VP and founder of Secure Network Technologies. Um, they are a security penetration testing firm. Okay, now this is a true story, and it, it's got a serious theme to it because there's one other area of wireless that is still – people are not thinking about it. Anyway, he says, in offices all over the world, users are becoming increasingly enamored with those wireless hands-free headsets that allow the speaker to move around the office while continuing a conversation on the phone. You're not talking cell phone headsets. These are, these are for landlines. Exactly. So, so instead of having the, the, you know, the coiled cord that where, where you're having to stretch that around, you replace it with a little, a little base station and wireless headset. Right. And he says, have you ever wondered how secure those headsets are? So have we. Recently, we had the chance to find out, and what we discovered was downright scary. 
If you don't know us, Secure Network Technologies is a penetration testing firm that focuses closely on the issues of physical security and social engineering. We were recently hired. Okay, so they were hired. So this what, what, what I'm about to describe here is legal. They were hired by a large organization to assess the company's network security and other potential vulnerabilities. Always anxious to try new things, we asked to test wireless signals leaving their building, including wireless access points, radio frequencies, etc., and potential vulnerabilities in those hot little hands-free headsets. To perform the work, we purchased a commercially available radio scanner. These devices are available at any local electronics retailer at prices ranging from $80 to several thousand dollars. We chose a scanner capable of monitoring frequencies from 900 to 928 megahertz and the 1.2 gigahertz ranges, which is where many of the popular hands-free headsets operate. We took a position across the street from the facility and started up the scanner. Within seconds of turning on the device, we were able to listen to conversations that appeared to be coming from our clients' employees. Wow. Several of these conversations discussed the business in detail as well as very sensitive topics. After some careful listening, we determined that the conversations were indeed coming from our customer. After confirming that the sources of the conversations were our clients were on our clients' premises, we made note of the specific frequencies that were used and locked in on them. We could then record the conversations digitally using the scanner. Within minutes of this discovery, we contacted our customer and explained the vulnerability. We felt this issue could not wait for our final report. To demonstrate the sensitivity of what we discovered, we used the conversations we recorded to social engineer our way into the facility. Oh, boy. We gathered the names of people mentioned during conference calls, as well as other specifics about each person. We then singled out people that were foreign to the location we planned to enter. We singled out the names of people whom the callers had never met, people who had never been to the location, and people who were new to the organization. Mm -hmm. Our plan was to assume an identity of an employee who had never been to the office we were testing. Using that identity, we would enter the building, commandeer a place to sit and work, then see how long we could stay inside the building. After zeroing in on a particular employee, we gathered as much intelligence on him as we could. To prepare for the entry into the facility, we printed a business card with our assumed identity. I put on my best suit. <laughs> this guy likes his work way too much. <laughs> uh, I put on my best suit, he says, and then went to work. When I entered the building, I was greeted by security. I indicated I was an employee and was in town to work. Oh. I handed the security guard a business card and was welcomed with a smile. After escorting me to a cubicle, oh the, guard sh the guard showed me where the restroom was, where I could get a cup of coffee, and how to go about getting a building access card. After settling into my new workspace, I plugged my laptop into the network, started my network scanning tool, and retreated to the cafeteria for lunch. Upon my return, I was presented with a card access key to the building. The card was accompanied by a document outlining security policies regarding its usage. Clearly, the people who issued it never checked deeper into who I really was. 
with access card in hand, I started exploring the building. Wow. I had almost complete access. In the few places where the card did not work, such as the server room and fitness center, I used additional social engineering tactics to gain access to those as well. By day two, I was already accepted as an employee. In the morning, I greeted, I greeted, I was, I was greeted by my would-be co-workers and security folks. I began to take some liberties, such as booking conference rooms, asking for refreshments, <laughs> and gaining permission to bring in a vendor, unquote. Wow. Actually, Doug Shields, my partner here at Secure Network. In all, I spent three days inside the building, gaining access to numerous types of information, resources, and technology. Oh, my goodness. Our social engineering effort was just one exploit. The real danger is the information that was being emitted across the street from the company through the wireless headsets. This technology is convenient, but it is opening companies to potential calamity. With the data we heard, we could have made a stock play, provided wow. valuable information to a competitor, or gone to the press with scandalous data. We also noted that when conversations ended, the headsets became bugging devices. Even after calls were terminated, we could hear headset wearers breathing oh. as well as any other conversations oh. that were going on in their offices. Oh, my goodness. We were interested in this vulnerability, so we asked for permission for other clients to test it out at their locations as well. We ended up intercepting communications ranging from financial institutions, healthcare, and variety of other professions and industries. We heard conversations from administrators of computer networks, C-level, that is to say CEO, CIO, so forth, C-level executives, legal departments, and management teams. What did we prove? That many companies which fear security breaches and eavesdropping are actually bugging their own offices and spilling their private content over the open airways without their knowledge. The problem is not unlike the early days of wireless LANs and Wi-Fi when the technology became popular before adequate security was developed. What can you do about it? The first step is to recognize the vulnerability. These headsets generally operate at 900 megahertz and, as we learned, are not necessarily secured with encryption. Find out who's using the technology and where. Secondly, you should consider doing a scanning test of your own, as we did for our client. It's worth 80 bucks to make sure your corporate secrets are not unintentionally leaking out of the building via wireless headsets. Now, just to make it clear, these uh, wireless headsets aren't the same as, say, a cordless phone, or are they? Um, no, these are add-ons to typical corporate phones. Right. I mean, I've got one around oh, yeah, here somewhere. I have a Plantronics right here. I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's very much like that. And there is, they are simply trans... I mean, this is exactly like me refusing to talk to my attorney right. on, an, on, an analog, on an early analog cell phone. I mean, arguably, that was even worse because there you've got serious range. But these things work across the street. And, I mean, in this case, this guy, simply by overhearing conversations, was able to, to function as an employee in a company... Where he wasn't employed, that you know the higher ups knew and gave him permission to do this, but that permission was entirely optional. Yeah, I mean anyone 
could could do what what what, what this uh, you know Steve and his partner um, was it Doug or David um, were able to do. That's just amazing. So I just wanted. I mean, this this report. I just read this. I thought, okay, we've got to talk about this. I mean, just the idea that these little—they're basically handset extensions—and you know, people who use them are bugging themselves. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Second amazing story of the week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is this is also frightening. I mean, this is what I'm about to read is horrifying and true. Um, it's. It was a it, it's a it was a posted by a blog at Symantec describing an amazing Trojan known as Silent Banker. What what's really fun about this too is that I, I'm going to read the blog entry. It touches on so many things that we have already talked about. So I mean, this is a little bit of a walk in the park for for our listeners. But the the blog entry was titled "Banking in Silence." Targeting over 400 banks, including my own, writes this blogger, this semantic blogger, and having the ability to circumvent two-factor authentication Uh are just two of the features that push the silent banker Trojan into the limelight. The scale and sophistication of this emerging banking Trojan is worrying even for someone who sees banking Trojans on a daily basis. This Trojan downloads a configuration file that contains the domain names of over 400 banks. Not only are the usual large American banks targeted, but banks in many other countries are also targeting, including France, Spain, Ireland, the UK, Finland, Turkey, and the list goes on. The ability of this Trojan to perform man-in-the-middle attacks on valid transactions is what is most worrying. The Trojan can intercept transactions that require two-factor authentication. It can then silently change the user-entered destination bank account details to the attacker's account details instead. Of course, the Trojan ensures that the user does not notice this change by presenting the user with the details they expect to see while all the time sending the bank the attacker's details instead. Since the user doesn't notice anything wrong with the transaction, they will enter the second authentication password, in effect handing over their money to the attacker's. The Trojan intercepts all of this traffic before it is encrypted, so even if the transaction takes place over SSL, and of course we know we certainly hope it would, the attack is still valid. Unfortunately, we were unable to reproduce exactly such a transaction in the lab. However, through analysis of the Trojan's code, it can be seen that this feature is available to the attackers. The Trojan does not use this attack vector for all banks, however. It only uses this route when when an easier route is not available. If a transaction can occur at the targeted bank using just a username and password, then the Trojan will take that information. If a certificate is also required, the Trojan can steal that too. If cookies are required, the Trojan steals those as well. In fact, even if the attacker is missing a piece of information to conduct a transaction, extra HTML is added to the page to ask the user for that additional information. 
and he shows two screenshots here. I've got a I've made a shortcut for this blog entry because it's really worth looking at it and and for our listeners. Um, it's just snipurl.com slash SN130. That's the episode number of Security Now. So anyone can put snipurl.com slash SN130, and they'll get this, this blog posting. He goes on to say, when instructed, the Trojan can also redirect users to an attacker-controlled server instead of the real bank in order to perform a classic man-in-the-middle attack. Currently, there's only one bank targeted in this way. However, recent updates to the Trojan, oh, and get this, it gets constant updates using, you know, updated software. (laughs) If it's working, why not? Yes. Recent updates to the Trojan change the user's DNS settings, which we were talking about just recently a couple weeks ago, change the user's DNS settings to point to an attacker-controlled DNS server. Using this technique, the Trojan can start redirecting any site to an attacker site at any time. This feature could also mean that if the Trojan is removed, but the DNS settings are left unchanged, then the user will still be at risk. See below for the attacker's DNS server addresses. Add to all of the above the ability to steal FTP pop, webmail, protected storage, and cached passwords, and then we start to see the capabilities of this Trojan. But it doesn't stop there. Don't forget the porn. The Trojan also contains over 600 pornographic website URLs that can be be shown to the Internet user so that the attacker can make money from the referrals. Lastly, the Trojan can also download updates, which it regularly does. It can also upload other executables and has and can be and can use the infected image as a proxy or as a web server on any chosen port. In tests, the HTTP port used was eighteen one oh two. The multiple configuration files that the Trojan downloads are updated several times per day, so it's more current than than Windows is. And, <laughs> more current than anything. Yeah. More current and than cur- Norton Antivirus. <laughs> and currently, the Trojan is capable of injecting HTML into about 200 different URLs, meaning that, that as a as a web page is being displayed on the, by the user's browser, and this thing knows about both... Um, Internet Explorer and um, uh, Firefox, as the web page is being displayed, the Trojan is able to intercept that communication and insert its own modifications, its own HTML into the page. He says, the configuration files are compressed and encrypted. However, after decrypting them, we can see how the Trojan works in detail. And then he goes on into some additional detail, which many of our listeners may find interesting. Anyway, I mean, this this is a beautiful posting because it gives you a sense for just how sophisticated Trojan technology is becoming. And, I mean, how much effort people are willing to go to for this kind of high-value attack. Well, it also introduced to me uh, a new category. I never heard the phrase banking Trojan. But obviously, these are Trojans aimed at uh, corrupting uh, your Internet banking experience, right? Exactly. So yeah. you, so you're right. There is now a classification of, of Trojans, a, a set of Trojans, of, of which this is perhaps, and, and, and this guy 
uh, from everything he's seen, this is the most sophisticated one of all. And for, well, for one reason, it's not like it's one Trojan for one particular bank. And so you're, you know, how many, you know, what's the chance that the infected four, user is going to 400 banks? Yes, and it's got specific scripting technology in order to deal with each one on a bank-by-bank basis. So just to understand, it it would get on your computer as an end user, and it would intercept information about your banking login, basically. Correct. Essentially, you you really don't want this Trojan (laughs) on your machine if you're someone who does online banking. And, and And he mentions it's all over the world. I mean, it's not just U.S. banks. It's banks all over the world. Right. Wow. So something to be aware of. Uh, You know, banks, I think, routinely cover up these kinds of losses. But this is a loss to you. This wouldn't be a loss to the bank, exactly. Uh, Right. Exactly. You you might very well go to check your balance and find that it has been zeroed because because this thing watched you log in once. Wow. And I mean, might right then have executed a, a funds transfer. If not, it's it knows how to. And it's it's able to send this back to headquarters, and then somebody else can log in as you. Even if, as this thing, I mean, this thing is so comprehensive that whatever authentication data is necessary. It understands, for example, you know, grabbing cookie details. So somebody could literally pretend to be you, even if you had static cookies on your machine to identify you. And we, and we, for example, we've talked about how how authentication strength is reduced in instances where you do have a cookie because you've 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 already authenticated your machine to the bank once before and so it says oh well this you know here's a cookie we recognize we'll only ask for the username and password and not you know which kitten the guy you know has chosen in the past right right hey i i want i had a couple of emails that i wanted to just to fill you in on one is from actually I got it from a number of people but remy was the first he's a level designer at ubisoft uh montreal Deep Freeze was the name of the program I was trying to remember. We were talking about uh, yep. Windows and uh, Microsoft's capability of, what was the name of the Windows? Uh, Ste- steady State. Steady State. So Deep Freeze is from Pharonix, and I've had a number of people recommend it to me in the past. Does something very similar. It kind of resets the machine on every reboot. Um, um, is it free? Uh, no, it's not. And Microsoft's is. Yep. Uh, but Deep Freeze isn't hugely expensive. It depends on how many seats you have and so forth it's 45 bucks just for the basic yeah version. Okay. so it's not hugely expensive but if you had hundreds of seats it would get more expensive and then i want to thank uh, randall schwartz and many other folks who are fans of TrueCrypt. the good news you probably heard this also there is yep. now an os 10 TrueCrypt. right right when we started talking about it um i went to the uh, the TrueCrypt site and it said we're working on a mac beta uh TrueCrypt 5 is out and in fact works on os 10 i've downloaded it in fact it is compatible across os 10 Windows and Linux, so you can have a TrueCrypt encrypted a file, folder, or disk, and you could read it on any of those three operating systems. Which is very cool. cool. Yeah, and, and in fact, there was so much interest in this that uh, our, our Q and A that we'll, we'll be getting to shortly uh, talks about some things that are built in already to the Mac. Oh yes, of course. I, we'll get to that in a second. Before yep. we do, though, ladies and gentlemen, I do want to welcome Astaro back. They're back. Yes, they're back. So glad. Uh, the only reason they were gone for a, a few weeks is I was slow to get them the, the contract, but we've got that worked out, and they are back through the rest of the year, and of course, we, we know why. Astaro is the greatest. When it comes to UTMs, Unified Threat Management Systems, Astaro's security gateway is the one you want, a complete set of technologies best-of-breed open-source and commercial software, does it all spam phishing 
dual virus protection. You don't have to worry about that Trojan horse. Transparent encryption. Uh, of course, it does SSL uh, VPN, which is really great. It automatically does uh, SMIME and OpenPGP, so your your desks don't know about it, but you do web filtering, control things like IM and P2P. I mean, it just goes on and on. Hey, if you are a uh, Cisco PIX user, you know the end of line on the PIX. Uh, they just announced Cisco is killing the PIX appliance. So if you're a PIX user, Astaro wants you to know they've got a deal, a trade-in program offering you 20% off list on Astaro hardware, software, and maintenance for their three- to five-year agreements with the return of a Cisco PIX firewall appliance. So upgrade to the best. If you're trading in your PIX, that's astaro.com slash upgrade your PIX. Astaro is A-S-T-A-R-O.com. To learn more, just go to astaro.com. And if you want to get a, a copy of Astaro for your non-commercial use, it's free. Go to astaro.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support. We welcome them back. It's so nice to, you know, it's like an old friend. It, it just felt like something was missing. You can also get more information. In fact, arrange free demo unit for your business by calling 877-4-ASTARO. You can ask them about the PIX upgrade, too. That's 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. So glad Astaro's back. Thank you for your support. We missed you. And uh, now it's time. Are you ready? I'm ready, Leo. You feel good? It's time. <laughs> it's question question time. And we'll start off with Lynn in Kalamazoo. Uh, Lynn has a lot to say. Hello, Steve and Leo. Longtime listener here. Start off with you on show one. Shouldn't that have been show zero? Yes. In true programmer's form, I should have named it zero. Twit started with zero. But uh, I don't know why. I just I, I wasn't thinking. We start with show one. Love the show. Frequently re-listen to past episodes to keep your ideas and teaching fresh in my mind. We do recommend that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, get, those of you. <laughs> I don't gain anything from that, but I think there is an advantage to that. You know, you listen again and again. I don't gain anything from it, Steve. We all, you know, it's just, it's, I like that idea. I have to listen to it again. I get something more every time. I'm on the road about three hours a day, so I get a lot of security now, and I love it. Additionally, about six months ago, I became a Spinrite customer. I have 11 computers, 30 hard drives at home. What? Like most of your other listeners, I've saved several drives and many gigabytes of information with Spinrite. I don't know how I live without it. Your last episode reminded me that I, too, had a few old broken dead drives in storage. Remember, we were talking about that. You know, it's somebody had resurrected a drive. They hadn't used it. What? They had wrapped it up and hadn't used it in years. Yeah. So he was kind of like cutting off your head and hoping that the, some, and freezing it. Someday they'll be able to resurrect you. So I was able to revive them and get some cool data I've missed over the years. You know, I have to do that. I have tons of drives. Everybody does. Just, you know, old 20 megabyte drives, things like that. It would work with any drive, right? Sure. Any IDE drive. And, and I mean, even pre-IDE, if you still have the controller lying around. The, you know, MFM, the, the, RLL, remember those? Yep. 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 Uh, your last episode, oh yeah, okay, da, da, da. my longest drive recovery, I'll get this. Now, our record is three months, I think, right? I think so. He took 17 days. That means his Spinrite was running for 17 days, but spin, <laughs> he's patient. He'd heard about three months, I guess. My Spinrite finally sorted everything out. I was able to get what I needed back from the drive. One question, though, about Spinrite. I have an expensive aviation Garmin GPS unit that's having a memory issue. It has 512 megs of RAM. It treats as a drive. I can't get DOS to see it as a drive, or I can get DOS to see it as a drive. If I plug it in via USB, can I get Spinrite to work on it? I'm a pilot, and I really depend on my GPS. I'd love to save the two grand from buying another one. Those are vital, uh, you know, those GPSs. Problem is yeah, USB, I, right? 
Well, um, I don't know exactly. He says he has a, a RAM issue. I would advise him not to use Spinrite on that on, on that system because you really don't want to run Spinrite on non-volatile RAM. All it will do is tend to you know bring it closer to its end of life. So I, I, I would never recommend running Spinrite on any kind of non-volatile solid-state storage. We've talked about how ultimately all it does is 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 move them further toward end of life. So right. it's really not what you want to do. I don't know enough about his system um what kind of an an issue as he puts it he has. I mean, if DOS will see it, Spinrite will run on it. But so, not as a USB drive though. Oh yeah, if, if absolutely. Oh, it will. Yeah, I thought the interf- the USB interface hid drive essentials that you needed to see. No, you can still read and write, and Spinrite's able to back itself off and use as much of the available ah. interface as possible. So, so you won't get the low-level stuff. Correct. Okay. Correct. You, you don't have the ability to talk as intimately to the drive as when you plug it onto the motherboard directly, but it still works, and it still oh, does data recovery. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. I thought we had to connect via IDE. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. So worth at least trying. So, yeah, I would, I mean... I, if, if it's if, really RAM, if it's flash, don't do it. If it's flash, don't do it. It has to be um, non-volatile, or otherwise it'd be useless. Yeah. See, I don't understand what data he's got there. I would say apps. Uh, co- you know, pull it all off and just reformat it. I would think maybe just reformatting it ought to, you know, yeah. cure whatever problem he's got. There you go. Uh, he has more. <laughs> he says now on to my questions <laughs> regarding enterprise and corporate security. First, is Sprint's wireless data card safe? I use a Verizon EVDO card like the Sprint one. He says, am I beyond? So I'm curious about this answer, too. Am I behind an at router? Do I need a software firewall? I've been running the Sprint card for about a year with no issues, but I was wondering what my exposure is. It's a corporate laptop, sensitive data. I thought we should know. I haven't heard about this uh, on security now yet. It fails the Shields up uh, all stealth test. It has uh, service ports green except for port 22, which is closed. So I fail Shields up, but everything is blocked. As far as... 22 is uh, uh, SSH, right? Yeah. As far as a router, my, my trace route hops seven times in the 68 dot 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 range before going to wired land network. So there's seven hops within the Sprint network. Is there anything wireless data card users should do to stay secure? How do these differ from my home network protected by my NAT router? Second, I've never. Should we answer that first before we go on to a spreadsheet? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, now I don't want to freak everyone out. Oh boy. But both. I'm, I'm freaked out already. Both types of cellular technology, both uh, GSM and CDMA, unfortunately, use encryption that was. I mean, I can just hear our listeners getting ready for this. Was designed by engineers. And not by crypto people, um, just like just like WEP. In their defense, in defense of the cell technology, back when this was first done, there w- it was much more expensive to have processing power right. than it is now. Right. The the at least in the case of GSM, it's based on a shift register. I think it's three different shift registers with multiple taps which is one way of generating pseudo-random data. They've tried, the, the, the people doing it tried to keep a tra- this as a trade secret, tried, tried to keep it proprietary. Bottom line is, it's been cracked. Um, now, you, same un- as- you understand, first of all, this, isn't C- this is CDMA, 
And it's and it's Evdo. It's EVDO. It's Sprint. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, exactly. Now, but CDMA has been cracked also. Oh. So. And I so, don't know if Evdo really uses CDMA technology. It's on those frequencies, but it might use something else. Actually, it does. All uh, all EVDO is really doing is aggregating a bunch of channels together oh. and, and and essentially that's where you get all this extra bandwidth oh interesting is it, just, it just pulls a bunch of cell channels together and uses them all in parallel in order to in, increase its speed how interesting um i don't know one way or another for sure whether there's an additional layer of encryption on top of the standard cell technology and when i again i, I as i started saying i don't want to freak out our listeners it's not like you know, CDMA and GPRS or um, uh, GSM has been cracked to the degree, for example, that Wi-Fi has been. But there, but there are papers on the net that talk about, you know, how this stuff can be cracked. So it's not like there's super strong industrial grade, you know, current state of the art crypto. The problem is these technologies, these digital cellular technologies are so old and now so widely deployed that they can't be updated without obsoleting the entire network. And, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're encrypted to, to the, to the extent that you have to really, really, really want to crack them in order to in order to get inside them, but it is possible. Has been done. I'm reading here that EVDO uses a 42-bit pseudo noise sequence called a long code to scramble the transmissions. So right. I mean, that's not and, very and, long. No, it's not. And again, it's and it's, then it uses AES on top of it. Yeah. Well, wait okay. a minute. Now wait a minute. The long code scrambles transmissions through the standardized cellular authentication and voice encryption algorithm which is probably the one that's broken to generate a 128-bit subkey called shared secret data ssd this key feeds into an aes algorithm to encrypt transmissions well that does sound pretty good if it's using aes with a 128-bit key generated by random pseudo by pseudo noise yeah it doesn't sound like it's using any kind of a um, a, a public key technology, and I don't know where the shared secret comes from. It might be based on the phone number, or oh, yeah. maybe it's established ahead of time. Anyway, I, it is on my list of things to research deeply, so we, I can, you know, we'll we'll spend an hour here uh, before too long talking in detail about cell, cellular encryption technology because I know lots of people are, you know, a little anxious about it. Well, the thing that makes me anxious is maybe EVDO is secure, the data is secure, but it sounds like voice transmissions over gsm and cdma are not right they would be uh, relying on that initial level of obfuscation right. which you really cannot consider as being encryption right you know it's funny because when we went from analog to digital cell phones i remember you know because as we talked about earlier analog cell phones just like analog landlines were worth you know completely completely monitorable yep and i remember asking hackers and they said well we don't know how but <laughs> Probably you could hack into it. Probably. Probably you could. We just, and this was very early on. Uh, He has another question. This is a, you're right. He has a lot to say. But Lynn, we don't mind because you're a, you're a pilot and you're going to fly us safe the next time we go up in the air. I've never heard the question on security now about Microsoft Excel security. Okay. (laughs) I often, I often timeshare Excel uh, spreadsheets with people who I want to be able to use the spreadsheet, but not see my formulas or change anything. As most folks know, if you use sheet protection and a complicated 64-bit password, it can be easily cracked in seconds with freeware out there. Okay. 
My question would be, is there any way to secure XL so that it cannot be cracked and you can keep formulas and data from being changed? I did try to use OpenOffice's XML formatting with protection, but then, of course, Microsoft Windows customer or Office customers can't use them. Steve and Leo, please help. Yeah, this was a, an interesting question. Um, I mean, he obviously knows that that the built-in password protection that's afforded to Excel, you know, there's lots of freeware around there that'll, that'll crack that easily. Um, the only thing I could suggest, I don't quite understand what he's hoping to achieve. He wants to allow people to view his spreadsheet but not change it. So the, the thought that I had was to print it to a PDF file. And then they've, you know, they've got the spreadsheet data, contents, charts, and all that stuff in a non-modifiable form, which is, which is apparently what he wants them to see, but not be able to change. So, you know, that was the the one thought that I had. Other than that, I mean, you could use external encryption to encrypt the file very strongly, but then you'd have to give anyone the password in order to decrypt it if they wanted to display it. So I don't think that really solves this problem. The only thing I could think was just move it out of an Excel format into a printed form and, and you know, share it that way. Yeah, it depends how he wants people to use it. If he wants them to be able to enter their own numbers, yeah, then I think you're out of luck. I think you have to use whatever Microsoft does, and clearly Microsoft's not doing much. Right. Chuck in Tennessee suffers from debris. Hey, you wrote a little poem there. <laughs> How do you deal with all the pre-installed junk when you buy a new machine? I've thought of just buying a new copy of Windows to go with every new machine. That gets expensive. Have you purchased Windows off the shelf just to get as clean a slate as possible? Is this obsessive? Also, are there a range of running processes that you'd like Task Manager to be showing? You know, this is a, a great question that comes up, you know, often. And I was sort of talking about it the other day. Um, I was very impressed frankly, with how clean the most recent two Dell systems that I've seen, a laptop and a desktop, they both had virtually nothing on them that I was unhappy with. Um, I also recently purchased some ThinkPads for my employees, and unfortunately there was a bunch of junk there, and I've seen other machines which... Which I mean are just well. Oh my God, HP's oh, current offerings. Oh, it's oh, the worst. HP is the worst. There's nobody worse. Oh, I mean it's just well. Okay, so huh. uh, I'm I, I've taken exactly the the position that Chuck has, which is the only the only way to deal with this is just to scrape off the machine and start and and start over. Now I'm a paid MSDN developer, so I have the right to install. For example, you, XP. You, you pay them. They don't pay you. Oh, yeah. I pay him $2,500. <laughs> he pays a lot. <laughs> $2,700 or something But per you get year. a licensed copy of Windows that you can install on as many machines as you want. Yeah. I so think it's no it's, big deal for you. I can't give it away, of course. No. But, but so, so that's not a problem for me. My point is that both with the recent ThinkPad and with the recent HP, even armed with all the drivers that I can find on their sites... I have been unable to install a clean build of a clean install of Windows and get rid of all the little yellow exclamation points uh. under the device manager to make it happy again. Uh, in on on little HB Pavilion, I couldn't. I was never able to get the uh, CD DVD ROM working on my. And I tried the same thing on my ThinkPad. I spent two days trying to 
to start from scratch, install Windows. Of course, I'm using Drive Snapshot all the time in order to make you know checkpoints. And I should say, of course, that before I did anything, I made a snapshot of the – I mean, before I even booted it the first time, I made a snapshot of it. So that if my attempt to install clean and build it up failed, then I could get back to the way it was when I when it first got taken out of the box. What I ended up doing with the ThinkPad – on all four of them now, is simply removing stuff. I, I don't like using add-remove programs in order to remove the annoying stuff, but there really was no choice. And I, and I always sort of feel like, well, there's going to be some debris left. It's not really – is it really removed completely? We've had no trouble with our ThinkPads where we just started with the way it came and then backed out of that – back to leaving the things installed that are necessary. And I mean, in most recent cases, I've been unsuccessful in, unfortunately, in installing a clean version of Windows and then getting all the various, you know, basically just the device drivers and additional stuff that I wanted to have there working. So, you know, it's, it's a mixed blessing. I would just say don't buy HP, you know, buy <laughs> Dell. There are, really. a couple of, there are a couple of things to say about that. If Dell they've used got, to... They've, They've got to get a clue about this, Leo. It is so bad. Well, Dell used to, and I think one of the reasons they don't, they have this uh, program where they ask uh, users what they want to change, and uh, they've done a number of things. That's why they brought back XP. That's why they offer Linux, and it's why uh, Dell, which is, I think they've done a very good job of removing the junk. There is a program, actually it was a guy wrote it because he was so frustrated with his HP, called the PC Decrapifier. <laughs> yes, I, I've heard of that, yeah, too. It's PCDecrapifier.com. It's free. And uh, it does other things. I mean, it's, it's it's one thing to uninstall stuff, but it also things does things like resets the home and search pages, uh, eliminates unnecessary startup items. You know, it takes out things like Google and Yahoo toolbar. So there's a lot of stuff um, yep. that I I think is you know this is a choice. The other thing is many manufacturers, if well maybe not many, some will still sell you a real Windows disk as opposed to a recovery disk. The recovery disk, of course, recovers the crap, but a real Windows disk, you know, with a hologram on and all that, is just a Windows disk. So if it comes with that, then you're then you're golden. I should mention, speaking of installing Windows, that I was poking around Microsoft's MSDN site uh, just the other day, um, and I noticed with glee that Service Pack 3 for Windows XP is now at release candidate 1 state. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, please... Hallelujah. No more 95 or 98 updates and rebooting nine times for the updates, 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 updates. Well, to get not for a updated. few months, and then you'll have to do that again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and by the way, we should mention that uh, uh, Vista uh, SP1 has now been released. It's not, it won't be, uh, you won't be pushed out to you till March, probably. Who cares? <laughs> Some people care. <laughs> and we'll talk about it, uh, uh, Paul Therott and I will, I'm sure, talk about it Friday on uh, Windows oh, Weekly, as well as SP3 for uh, XP. Um, yeah, because that, now that's finally out, which is nice. I mean, I don't know if it makes Vista better, but anyway, it's out. Yeah. So uh, thank you. That was a, a good question. Um, he did also ask about Task Manager, and there's no easy way to ask to oh, answer the right. question about running processes. But I can, I can I, tell you a place to go. I will say that that every so often I will look at, for example, the processes running on GRC's Win2K box, and I'm just jarred. By how few there are, compared because to when XP, I yeah. when I set it up, 
I went through and I turned off all this nonsense, especially for a server that's just going to sit there. Right, you know, it's right. not doesn't need all kinds of wacky stuff running. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll I'll turn things off that I then I later need, like I'll turn off the DHCP client because I'm not using uh, dynamic uh, IPs within my own network. I'm in a 10 dot network and I sign them all myself and then I'll take a machine somewhere and it won't connect. I was like, what the heck? It's like, Oh, <laughs> wait a minute. I turned off the DHCP. But again, it's like, I really do. I bolt these machines down and reduce the running processes, you know, just, just as a matter of best practices in, in security and it boots a lot faster too. It's Black Viper who uh, did this fame, most famously for yep. XP and then went offline. Yeah. He's back. He's back. Blackviper.com. B-L-A-C-K-V-I-P-E-R.com. And he does have um, all of the configuration recommendations and the services you can turn off and at least explains what they do. Isn't it so annoying, too, that Microsoft gives you this one little line? It's like, yeah. you know, multi, uh, tracks changes to multiple <laughs> files over the, over the network. It's like, OK, well, do I need that or yeah, not? Right. And that's what Black, Vi- Black Viper was a gamer. But he, he he's by trial and error. Went through all these services to figure out what you could turn off and, and what you had to leave on. So that's a good source of stuff you can turn off. And then, of course, you can use msconfig, but I recommend auto runs. That's Mark Rosinovich's uh, program now from Microsoft yep. Yep. Uh, at SysInternals. It's Microsoft. Just Google auto runs and Microsoft. You'll find it. A listener who didn't leave his name wonders about the dark side. Maybe he wants to be anonymous. Hi, Stephen Leo. Thanks for such a great show. I've learned a lot. You guys have never really talked about cracks pirated software the whole where's scene i knew a guy used to call it warez w-a-r-e-z where's scene it surprises me how many people use serials and cracks without considering the security implications i don't pirate software at all for lots of reasons many people do well boy i'll tell you one thing those where's sites are a hotbed oh of security exploits um uh, it's true confession time uh not long ago maybe about two months ago I was really annoyed with my copy of Eudora, which was, you know, in standard form several versions back because it had not been giving me a problem. But I was and I mean, I love Eudora. I've been using it forever. I I actually own many more registrations because I used to have employees that were all registered Eudora users. Um, And so, I mean, they wandered off and 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 no longer using Eudora. And. So I thought, okay, well, and I was having a problem because one of the cool things Eudora does is it stores all of the contents of a folder in a single text file, which is just nice. The problem is it tries to parse that file by just scanning the headers, and sometimes it gets messed up, especially if people are including what looks like email inside of email. Then that really gives it a, a you know heartburn. So I thought, okay, I wonder if they've like fixed this with newer Eudora. So I went to Eudora.com and you know immediately was greeted with, we're sorry, we're no longer publishing Eudora. Uh, version 7.1 was the last one. You can't have it. Um, and or the I think the the sponsored edition, which gives you ads in the UI that you can still have. And then they say, oh, but don't worry, um, it's going to be going open source. And um, it'll be coming out soon. Well, tur- so I, I investigated that. It turns out that that's really not true. Instead, the Mozilla people are putting a Eudora UI onto their their email client, their their communications client. So it's like, okay, well, that's not what I want. 
So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? I mean, I've, I own a whole ton of these licenses. I, I can't get a five, a 7.1. I'd be happy to purchase it if I could, but they don't sell anymore. So into the wares sites, um, knowing the danger of this, I used what I consider a sacrificial computer <laughs> because as you said, Leo, it is beyond bad. Um, and I did manage to get this machine deeply, horribly infected just by trying to poke around and see whether I could find something that would allow me to generate, you know, a key for a, a copy of Eudora that I was hoping would work, which again, I would have been glad to pay for. Um, and in fact, I've paid for it many, many more times than I'm using it now. So I think, okay, you know, morally, I'm ethically, yeah. I'm in yeah. the clear. But uh, anyway, um, you know, that's essentially how I feel about this is, is um, you know, again, you want to do what you feel is the right thing. There are solutions out there. But boy, as you said, Leo, they will I mean, nothing will hose your system faster than, than poking around in those dark corners. Well, just think about it. I mean, if you run a wares or a cracks site, actually, no, let me put it the other way. Let's say you're one of those people who wants to get exploits, Trojan horses, viruses, spyware on other people's machines. You bought one of those kits from the Russian website. You need, just need a website to put all that malware on. Now, what are you going to put together for a website? Well, you're either going to do porn or you're going to do cracks and wares. That's right. going to draw people in. Um, or serial number sites. And uh, so, of course, that's that's where all of these exploits are sitting. Now, we used, you know, occasionally on the screensavers, we would need, we would urgently need to run a program, and we would, I, I'm ashamed to admit it, figuring that, well, the company would want us to show the program on TV, we would go and get a serial number for that program. Sure. But I haven't done that in years. I wouldn't dream of doing it. First of all, because I, it's the, you know, I, I want to buy my software, but also because that's a, that's a sure, sure way to get infected. Yep. You know, I mean, do it. Uh, if you're going to, if you're going to do something like that, do it on a VMware uh, version of Windows that you then, ho you know, erase. Well, and that machine was seriously compromised. It had, I mean, Did little, it? little command dialogue boxes were popping up and then it was installing servers. And I mean, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. really, it's it was, I thought, I thought, well, I'm sure glad I didn't just go browsing around these horrible places yeah. with my A machine or it yeah. would be start over time. No kidding. Yep. Yikes. Aaron Skinner in Omaha, Nebraska. He's considering going steady. So here's my scenario. I'm running, uh, running Windows XP, Media Center Edition 2005. I have a couple of roommates who also use my computer. This computer is also used to play some online games. By the way, games like Battlefield 2142 don't seem to run right unless you install and run from an administrator account. Yeah, mm. and that's true. I'd like to have a setup with my personal login. Another login for my roommates in gaming. I want my personal login to have full access to everything. And the roommate gaming to reset after logoff. Well, I think we know the answer to this, so no changes are saved. Although this may cause issues with game save data. In addition, I still want my media center to fully function. You know, record TV shows, even if I'm not logged in, or I'm the only one who can do it. I'm also using Avast, which is an antivirus, home version. I want to be sure it gets automatic updates. Basically, I want to limit the roommates from doing damage to my computer while leaving my computer and gaming experience unhindered, continuing to run as admin. I guess I'm interested if and how steady state can be used in my situation. Oh, he heard the steady state issue. Yeah. And so he was wondering if it would apply to him. The only problem that I could see is first of all, a vast, as I recall, was not one of the few 
AV systems that Steady State was aware of. There were several, unfortunately, like I mean, McAfee was one, and I don't remember now what what they were. But there were only a couple that Steady State could deliberately interact with, and it certainly does require deliberate interaction and and um, operation in order to deliberately bypass this whole drive prophylactic essentially that steady state wraps your your system um partition in your c drive so um i don't think that steady state would work for a vast as i recall and that's a problem the other problem is that doing something like saving recording uh tv shows um you do have this driver sitting there which which is journaling changes to the system. And for example, when the admin, the, the, you know, the, when God of that machine logs off, you get, a, you get a dialogue that says, do you want to retain the changes? Do you want to flush the changes? So, so then you decide what you want to do with what has happened while you as the administrator were logged on non-admin users that is to say not that that the anyone who's not that made administrator account doesn't have the choice of course they would be like the user in the library that flushes their changes off the moment they log off but that does imply that this windows journaling thing is going in all is going along and is on all the time so it feels to me like this is probably not the best solution in this case i would say you know setting up some sort of a, um, a, a virtual machine for ah. for these other, the other people to use would you know give them containment that makes more sense in this environment because i don't i i just yeah it you know the Steady state is certainly designed in a shared access mode, but doesn't I, I think I think Aaron's application is pushing it a little too far, and I don't think he'd be happy with the way it works. Yeah. Okay, and I guess Steep Freeze would probably have exactly the same issues. I mean, anything would that's going to try to maintain that state. Yep. Amir Katz listening to us from Kafar Saba, Israel. Hello, Amir. Needs just a little encryption, just a little tiny bit of encryption. Hi, Steve. You've dedicated a full Security Now episode to TrueCrypt. You've mentioned it a few times afterwards and again today. However, I find I don't need to encrypt a whole partition or even a whole folder, just a few files. An AxCrypt, A-X-Crypt, is a simple and effective tool for just such tasks, especially if I don't need on-the-fly encryption. It's open source, GPL license, also has a secure delete feature, like S-Delete, which we mentioned uh, a couple of episodes ago. Can you comment on its security I find it extremely easy to use. I'm a loyal security now listener from episode one and a proud Spinrite user. Well, it's funny. Um, I had to go back and check to see whether I had ever referred to AxeCrypt in earlier episodes. And I haven't because it's what I use. You're kidding. Um, oh, that's no. funny. Yeah. I mean, I discovered it uh, maybe a couple of months ago when I was specifically looking around for a – oh, and it's also free, by the way. Um, it, it's volunteer, you know, voluntary support through PayPal and Amazon and, and a few other things. Um, it is a tremendous little program. It is, it is very lightweight. Um, it, it is different than – I answered a question like this maybe a few weeks ago, and it was a different program. I'm trying to think of the name now. Um, 
because it was for a slightly different application. Um, and I'm looking here, and I'm oh, Oz Oz Omzif O M Z I F F. That was the encryption tool I recommended because specifically because it made no modifications to the system it was run on. It was a completely freestanding executable. Um, by comparison, AxeCrypt does integrate itself into Windows, so it's more of an installation. It's not quite as standalone. And, for example, it adds right-click context menu support. So, for example, you could right-click on a file and say, encrypt yourself to the file. So it's, it's a little heavier duty, but I like it very much. And, and I've been very impressed with it and the way it operates. And now I'm worried I'm going to get AxeCrypt and OMZIF confused. <laughs> but I think AxeCrypt is the one which can, be, which can make a self-decompressing EXE, which is also very oh, cool. Oh, that's very handy because you can send it to somebody. Yes, and yeah. so exactly. So you 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 turn it in. You turn a you know a, a whatever an archive for of files, for example, into an EXE. Where when you run it, it prompts you for the file name, and it's all AES 256 bit. I mean, it's really, really good security. And as he says, it's open source, GPL'd. Um, it and you can even download the source from the AxeCrypt site. So I absolutely do recommend it. It's a it's a beautiful little program. I good. like it a lot. Good. Well, thank you, Amir. Good suggestion. Another anonymous listener has a question about IP space. Hi, St- Hi, Steve. I work at a large university which owns a, a Class B public IP range. Uh, for example, uh, 65.92.0.1 to 65.92.255.255. That's not the range, but that's an example. Consisting of 60,000 plus possible internet addresses, if my math's right. I've never been able to get info on how much this costs a university, although I know from my work in the private sector that a single IP can easily cost $5 a month. I don't think you multiply by 60000 but maybe I'm wrong. Whether the IPs are subsidized or not, it seems like a huge waste of money. Somebody must be paying somewhere and an unnecessary exposure to script kitties and hackers when over 90% of our users would be equally served with a free private IP range. In other words, having maybe one address for the whole university, which you use DHCP to share out. Yep. Do other universities do this? Or are they all subsidized? And if so, are taxpayers picking up millions of dollars in billing for what seems to be nothing more than an increased security risk? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, particularly if I'm totally wrong. It's not just universities. I mean, Internet service providers, lots of people buy big blocks. Well, um, B cl- a, B, a B class is big. He's totally wrong. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, it, IPs don't cost anything. Oh. Unle- unless you Unless you're resell reselling them. them, yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, we've never talked about this, so I thought it was a really great question. Back in the beginning... We, we had 32 bits of IP space, and it didn't used to be that networks could be divided sort of on arbitrary bit boundaries. We have talked about this notion of class A, class B, and class C networks. A C-class network having uh, one byte of IP addressing, that is to say 256 addresses, but you only get you, – you lose a couple – um, from that network, a that, that's a class C. A class B had two bytes of addressing, which is what um, this listener is talking about here. Where then 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 you're going to have 64k possible 
IP addresses within that network. And then, of course, a class A, you have three bytes of addressing. Right. So that's 24 bits of, of address space. So what happened was that the original 32-bit address space was just sort of chopped up in big pieces. Um, there are some universities that, and universities were, of course, uh, part of the early adopters of the Internet. And and so this, you know, this guy works for a large university. They just got themselves a B-class network. So they've got, you know, as as, as he says, he's, they have two bytes of addressing with the, t- the of the first two bytes are fixed for which essentially is the address of their big B-class network. And he's very right that it's. It may well be that the university does not need six five five three six or you know less a few individual IP addresses, but they've got them and they're not going to let them go. <laughs> so they were given them at the beginning. Yes, as a, as an EDU or whatever. Yes, and for example, you know, level three I think has all of four dot and uh, uh, BBN. Uh, was one of the other early adopters. Well, they invented the internet. They could probably have anything they wanted. I think they've got like one dot or or two dot <laughs> yeah, or something. That I would mean, make they're, sense. They're, and, and and so so essentially, the idea is that that all of these the really main um, uh, tier one ISPs generally own a huge chunk of IP space. I'm embarrassed to say that I at home have 64 IPs of which I use one because I'm behind a NAT router. And you get I mean, that because you bought servers uh, service or something, right? I no, mean, no, no. It's, it's funky because this actually was due to my great relationship in the old days with Vario where I did need some, some space and I had two 32 IP blocks that were disjoint. And so when I switched over, when Vario sold the T1s business over to Cogent, uh, you know, they took Vario's engineers, who I knew really well. You know, and Andy, my old my old Vario engineer, said, "Well, so how many do you want?" And I said, "Well, Andy, I don't really don't need many. Oh, come on, take as many as you need." <laughs> and and where, whereas, for example, with Level Three, who is who is now hosting GRC's bandwidth, they were like, "Prove to us you need more than two. Right. I said, "Well, what do you mean?" No, prove you. No. So I had to literally fill out a sheet. Showing how and why, and is then they called it the IP justification oh form. Oh my goodness! I had to fill out a form because they're not wanting anyone to waste them because they're their precious resource. Right. And no, nobody who ever gets any IP ever gives ever, them back. Yeah. Ever gives them back. <laughs> Mine. <Damn it>. Exactly. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> so oh, it that's really interesting. Is. You know, it's it's a weird sort of bizarre. Uh, consequence of the early days of the internet when you know people would say okay how many class b's do you need they just chop them up and you know because they weren't valuable then now they're just they're the most precious resource on the planet well now i figure we're done right there where everybody's got something and there's nothing left i mean do you know that all, that there's still only about 60 percent of the ip space is in use Wow. 40% is still just slack. It's it's people like the university hoarding the IP space because they don't want to give it back, <laughs> even though they may not be using it. And somebody else could. It's like, oh, no, no, no. This is ours. This is our class B. 
Well, it makes it easier for the record companies because they say, oh, there's 6592. We know where that is. Why, yep. that's, that's U of A or whatever it is. That's very true. And of course, we, I mean, you know, after you've been doing networking long enough, you start you, you recognizing look, those. Yeah. Yes. You can just see the IPs and go, oh, this is, you know, Cox Cable. This is right. Comcast. This is right. Roadrunner, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this is an AOL block. You know, well, when just, you said you know, four dot, I said, well, that's Verizon. So obviously, level one is given some to Verizon. Exactly. Yeah. Brian Bayenhoff has a Mac file security. Well, has he has Mac file security pretty well nailed. I've been listening to Security Now since episode one. Again, another great listener from the actual time it was released. Not by archive diving. I've been listening since day one, he says. <laughs> In the most recent listener feedback episode, 128, you had a question about encrypting files and folders on a Mac without using File Vault. Oh, I got a number of people sending me this. Oh, Leo, I—I yeah. I mean, half of the half of the email that I've received recently were Mac people who were proud. So I wanted to acknowledge everybody Thank who you, everybody. wrote in. Yes. Yeah, and actually, I—I I mean, I should have mentioned it. I've been—I've used this technique for years. In Disk Utility, you can create an encrypted disk image. It's a .dmg file that requires a password to mount. This obviously doesn't encrypt the whole home directory, but if you want to keep a set of files or folders encrypted, it can do the trick. You can even save the image's password in your account's encrypted keychain, put the file in your login items so it automatically gets mounted whenever you log in. You don't even have to enter a password, although you might not want to do that if you want more security. Another question mentioned erasing files securely on the Mac. In addition to secure empty trash, which according to Apple completely overwrites files with meaningless data. And I will, I will vouch for that because it takes about 20 times longer to empty the trash when you use it. <laughs> you can also securely clear all the free space in a hard drive. Disk utility to the rescue again. Select the drive. Go to the erase tab. Oh, that's right. I yep. have seen this setting. Then you can erase free space with a 7-pass or 35-pass uh, overwrite. Finally, if you boot to the OS X installation disk, you can run disk utility from the menu bar and securely erase the whole hard drive. With seven or thirty-five pass secure deletion, no DBAN needed. So Apple obviously gives you a number of ways to get this done. Yep, and Brad pretty much covered the bases. Again, I wanted to acknowledge everybody who wrote in with various flavors and pieces of that. I mean, from what he said, and being a person who doesn't want to install software I don't need, I love the idea that you can create essentially an encrypted partition, one of these DMG files, right. and you know, and put things in there knowing that if you remove the password from it, it's really going to be safe. Also, remember that if you that that if you delete files from there, you're not leaving them um, uh, sitting there in the clear on your drive because. Apple is encrypting them on the way to the drive, yeah. so they're always encrypted. So you essentially have sort of the equivalent of of secure delete for free. Right. Yeah, I, uh, yeah this is a really a good technique. Also, uh, you can make a sparse encrypted image so it's, it's, it's small, but can expand to accommodate whatever files you put in it. And when you uh, mount it, it mounts like there's a, a drive there. So it just shows yeah. up as another drive. So it's actually a very good technique. Nice. Steve Hedry of uh, Kitchener, Ontario, says, Steve missed an obvious solution. Maybe. Hi, folks. I've been an insatiable listener from the beginning. Another number one listener. You're all number ones. Steve's knowledge never ceases to amaze me. I hope the show never stops. One thing that surprised me, though, is his solution to the recurring question of how to provide both WEP and WPA access without risking compromise of the WPA side from the web access point. Steve has repeatedly described what seems to be kind of a kludgy solution involving three routers. 
Why doesn't he recommend using one of the free Linux firewall solutions, IPCOP, Endian Firewall, SmoothWall, that allows separate networks to share an internet connection without the untrusted network being able to see the trusted one? Both of these forks of the original SmoothWall install into an old PC with multiple NICs. You do need two NICs. I guess you might need three in this case. And allow up to three isolated networks with each less trusted network being unable to see the more trusted network. They are full-featured firewall routers in their own right as well and great use for an old Pentium 2 or 3. I might also add you could use a Starro Security Gateway for this. That's Leo talking. Endian is available as a hardware appliance as well as a free distribution for PCs. Setting up one of these seems to be a lot more straightforward and elegant than rigging multiple routers together for the same purpose. Am I missing something? Keep up with the good work. Love the show. Wouldn't be without Spinrite either. Well, he's absolutely right. Uh, I don't think this was an obvious solution, but I'm certainly aware of it. My, I guess the issue is for a high-end user, for somebody who has a PC, can install multiple NICs, wants to go into a, a Unix-based solution, absolutely this makes sense. Except that then you still need your wireless radios. So presumably you'd have a WPA router and a WEP router still. So really, I don't think you've solved any problems. Because well, and you, the router is doing essentially the same thing as a security gateway. So you, well, you, yes. you've used up a computer. You've, I mean, the router is a forty buck way to do this. I guess. Yes, exactly. And so, so the, you know, the reason I like the what I'll call the you know plastic con- consumer box approach of just taking three routers and plugging them in in a Y connection is that solves the problem. And this replaces the internet facing router, which splits the connection to a WPA and a WEP router, but you needed one anyway. So right. um, I didn't mean to snub all of these really nice turnkey solutions, uh, and of course, Astaro is, as, as you mentioned, Leo is is one as well. But you would still need two more routers, one for each of the Wi-Fi formats. So you haven't really made anything simpler, it seems to me. Although you've got a lot more configuration power, yeah. although a lot more configuration responsibility as well. It's very powerful. You could do a lot more with that. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean that's it's it's and you still by the way you still have the the triangle. I mean you still it's not the the yes. concept is basically the same. It's just using a different appliance to do it. Yes. Joe in Sacramento has uh, California has some additional clarification about built-in Mac encryption <laughs> and enterprise security question on a less on the last listener feedback show. Leo was asked if he knew of anything that would encrypt a folder on the Mac. You can use Disk Utility to create a new disk image with a 256-bit AES password encrypted. Encryption, you specifically you specify the image size like 2 gigs. It creates a file of that size that's encrypted, which you can then open and write files to and close when you're done. Best of all, it's part of OS X. Well, and I should say, the sparse image is probably more economical. It, it grows to accommodate what you need. Yeah, I love that. I love that solution. Yeah, I, That's what I use, is encrypted sparse image uh, DMGs. And it's, a very, it's very useful. I can actually keep um, a... Uh, uh, bunch of notes in those things with serial numbers and stuff and that's the that and i keep it uh, completely i feel secure another note about enterprise security at my work they've implemented full disk encryption using checkpoint i think it slows things down and we've had some computers crash because of corrupted encryption information like a fat table my question is why not use windows built-in enterprise ready efs do you know why have you tried it 
Well, it's interesting. This um, this um, follows on some work I've recently done, which I will be sharing with all of our users before long. Um, I found an incredibly nice free whole system encryption solution that does pre-boot encryption, where it, it alters the boot sector and points to some fixed file locations on the drive and essentially does on-the-fly encryption decryption for a system that doesn't have an encrypted hard drive uh, and works beautifully with Windows. The reason I, and I explored using EFS, this was for a a specific application I was configuring uh, about a month ago. The problem with EFS is when you pull a file out, it stays encrypted. And what normally what you want is you want the hard drive to be encrypted, but not exports from the hard drive. And so specifically, um, I wanted the the a system to be safe. But if I took if I copied a file, for example, to a USB, I wanted it decrypted in the process and to be transparent. Whereas EFS actually uses um, uh, file attributes, tags this as encrypted, and you get an encrypted copy that that you know you can't use. And I mean, which maybe what you want is to keep exported files from being decrypted on the fly, but that wasn't in my case uh, the application I was looking for. So um, this this thing I found, I'll, I, rather than teasing our users, I'll let everyone know it's called Free CompuSec. F R E E. C O M P U S E C. I've uh, I've researched it extensively, and we'll be doing a show on it before long. But if anyone wants to go poke around at it, uh, that's the name of it. And um, I have checked out the security of this thing, and it is they really got it nailed. It is nice, and I even went. I've I mean I've even benchmarked it because I wanted to find out what would be the overhead associated with doing software on the fly encryption decryption of the whole drive which is what this thing does literally the entire physical hard drive no matter how many partitions you divide it up into no matter what you do it starts at sector zero and runs an encryption across the entire drive when you put it into that state and um i don't have the numbers in front of me because i've got them written down for the show but it was like nine percent overhead i mean nothing it was it was not you couldn't feel the difference at all it took maybe 300 and 326 minutes to do or no not 326 minutes it i what what i did was i benchmarked a highly fragment the defragmentation of a highly fragmented drive both with and without this and the the increase was surprisingly minimal to, to add this on-the-fly encryption decryption. So we'll be talking about that soon. Wow, neat. Wow, very interesting. I can't wait. Our listener, Glenn in Denver, Colorado, is in a hurry to log in regarding Windows Steady State. He says, my biggest interest, in addition to customizing uh, what's retained and what is preserved, is how long the restoration process takes. And we mentioned it does uh, take a while. I always hate long login times required by machi- machines that start up Oh, so many processes at login time. So, is this the, this is the question of greatest concern? Is the logon process a matter of seconds, more on the order of minutes? How long? Yeah, in my experience, and I did I didn't exp- explore whether this is a function of the size of the cache. Uh, as I as I did mention in our steady state 
um, podcast, when you when you are going to install steady state, Windows um, asks you to defrag the drive to bring as much unused space um, to you know in, into one large um, contiguous block. Then steady state, and I don't quite get why, but it just takes half of that. It's like, thank you very much. Uh, you had 50 gig free. Now you've got 25. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. That's now, annoying right there. I got to tell you, you. Well, you can easily. There's a nice UI. You can easily bring that down to one gig or something you know, substantially more reasonable. I don't know whether that speeds up the login process. The reason I didn't research it extensively is it wasn't that bad. I mean, it, it, the, the process definitely took longer. But it and it was more than seconds, but it was less than minutes. So eh, maybe forty-five seconds, maybe I mean literally about forty-five seconds. I mean enough so that I'm I'm the same way. I'm Mister, you know, login speed freak, uh, and I, I was already saying that I don't run processes I don't need, so, and, and so forth. So when this thing kind of like came to a grinding halt, and I'm looking at a blank screen with a cursor, it's like, uh, okay, yeah. hello, yeah. Um, you know, but maybe it was 30 seconds. I mean, it was enough so that I knew it, but it wasn't enough so that I'm not going to use it in, in the application where steady state is, is really what I needed. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but not, now he's talking about boot time. Is that, does that relate to boot time? Well, yeah, because uh, when you log on, there's a, there's a, like, it has to load when, in that partition. Well, no, I don't know what it's doing. I mean, <laughs> It's it's definitely doing something. I thought maybe some other services were hung, so I went in and so I it is disabled. Slow. I mean, it's slow. It's it does slow down your login. There's no doubt about it. It slows down your login on the order of minutes. No, like maybe thirty seconds. Okay, that's not bad. Yeah. Right. Again, it's like I mean, again, you know, Glenn is really concerned about that. So I wanted to say yes. It, well, and, and I wanted to also mention that people can try this. I mean, it just, it does install nicely, it, and it goes away nicely, too. So it's not a big problem to give this a shot and see how you feel about it, yes, because it's nice. easy to back yourself out you of it. You can back out. Okay. Yep. Mark Livingston wins the Quick Tip of the Week Award, and Mike's Corporation in Minneapolis has the Amazing Idea of the Week Award. But before we do those, oh, am I mean... <laughs> time to mention audible yes we welcome audible.com i'm so happy to uh security now i mean criminy it's about time steve and i talk about books all the time we talk a lot about books on uh, the kindle and ebooks do you ever do audiobooks you know i don't because i'm not in a mode where i have a long period of time that i'm you know where an audio book would work i either i'm at starbucks and i'm i'm reading or, uh, well, I guess I'm, I'm just a reader. I, I, you know, it, we're going to win I, you over. Well, but, but for example, if I were commuting that where I'm, I've got a long period of time where I cannot be reading because, you know, that's not safe. Uh, then an audio book would make a lot of sense, but I just, yeah, you don't, your commute is like to the <laughs> three feet. <laughs> well, to the, to the espresso machine, basically. Yes. <laughs> well, I got a book that might convert you to audible.com. We should mention Audible is, of course, audiobooks you download, which means you get them as soon as you want them. You could put them on anything. You listen to them on the computer, put them on CD if you want, but you can also put them on almost any portable player. Uh, even the Kindle has Audible support, so you can put them on your Kindle, your iPod, your iPhone, many MP3 players. They have, they have hundreds of devices. And we're going to set it up so that you can get a free book 
You just go to... Yay, now, this is a cool. different URL. I want everybody to listen closely, and I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, too. It's audiblepodcast.com. They've got a new URL for us. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And that's how we know that you heard it on security now. See, we're in competition with all the other shows. Ooh, we're going to get them. <laughs> Audiblepodcast.com <laughs> slash security now. Now, here, listen to this, Steve, and see if you want to listen to it. Legacy of Ashes, the history of the CIA by Tim Ooh. Weiner. Uh, this is really scholarly work. Fifty thousand documents, primarily from the CIA archives. No, and isn't it like it? I think it's about like all the things they've messed up, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I I read something oh, about this yeah. book, Leo. The author Tim yep. Weiner is a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter. This is heavily researched. This is not you know some you know Kitty Kelly thing. Uh, he did the work. There are no anonymous sources, no blind quotes. Uh, the CIA, for the last 60 years, despite it has maintained a formidable reputation, despite its terrible record, finally, uh, the truth comes out. So if you're interested in security, national security, as well as personal privacy, you've got to read this. Legacy of Ashes, the History of the CIA. Now, this is a 21-hour book. This is going to, this is, this is going to take up some of your time. And that's why I like audiobooks, because I, unlike you, Steve, I spend a lot of time driving, ah. uh, the kids around, going to the gym. I work out at the gym. I like to listen to an audiobook. I, I can't, I'm bouncing around too much to read. I listen to audiobooks uh, when I'm working out, when I'm driving, uh, when I'm walking. And that's why I love this. And, and I'll tell you, I can get through a book this long in a couple of weeks. That's how much time I spend listening to audiobooks. This is a great one. Legacy of Ashes, the history of the CIA, unabridged by Tim Weiner. This is this could be yours free. All you got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. A great way to, to, to test out audiobooks. You gotta we'll find I'm gonna find one, Steve, that's just gonna knock you out. That you're gonna say, Oh man, I gotta hear this book. I'm gonna I'm um, gonna convert you over. How does this work like from a DRM standpoint? There's What's DRM the most- on it, but the, okay. the DRM is Similar to iTunes DRM, you get to put it on three different computers, and once it's on a computer, it can go on a variety of devices, just like iTunes. So they do, you know, and it, I, I, I talked to Audible about this. It, this is publishers, of course, insist on DRM, just as they do on the Kindle, um, just as they do on most ebooks, uh, because the publishers are terrified that people are just going to start distributing this stuff. Yeah. But, it, but as DRM goes, it's very unobtrusive. I'm never aware of it. Um, because I have, I, I can download it on three different computers. That's more than enough. And I could put it on all my portable devices. I have the same book on my iPod, my iPhone, and my Kindle sometimes. And you never know which device you're going to you have. Right, exactly. Yep. And one of the nice things about iPod syncing that I, that I really like is, uh, is that um, it remembers where you are in the book. So when you sync up the iPod uh, in the book, it remembers it. And I think most devices do this. It depends on how you're syncing it up. The Certainly the Audible manager does it. They have their own software. When you put it on a different device, you start the book at the right, pl- right place, which is, I think, excellent. That's very cool. Yeah. I have to say, I'm, I'm a big Audible fan. Audible.com uh, slash, I'm sorry. See, I did it. I knew I would do that because it's, <laughs> it's a new URL. Audible. Audible podcast. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. You've got a memory. <laughs> this guy remembers stuff. Audiblepodcast.com. Slash security now. And you know why he remembers it? Because he's intensely competitive. Yeah. (laughs) He's very competitive. He wants to get more clicks. So help us out here. Uh, Audible.com. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank him so much for uh, including security now 
in their bio of the Twitch. They bought now. I think they're on every show, which is amazing. They really yeah. love Twitch. Now, you were very patient, so you can hear Mark Livingston's quick tip of the week. This is this is the award winner, Steve. He says, if people want to data mine the Security Now transcripts, Google can help. Are you ready? This is a really useful Google tip. I use this all the time. You, you, you type site colon, and then you can narrow it, search down to a site. So in this case, if you type site colon grc.com, and then the word transcript, which will narrow it down to transcripts, and then whatever keywords you want, boom. And I got to tell you, it works because this is, I used it earlier today when I was putting the questions together right. for this AxCrypt, A-X-C-R-Y-P-T. Just to see if you'd ever mentioned the other one. Yes, I, and and nothing came up, and then I thought, uh, is this working? So <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, no, maybe maybe I'm fooling myself. So I put in, I don't know, VPN, and went boom, yeah. And there was like every, I mean, it was it's perfect, Leo. It's like every article, every article, every one of our our podcasts where I've mentioned VPN, thanks to. Elaine transcribing them all is just bang. And and thanks to Google, you can see the use of the VPN in context. I mean, it's like, and you know, I have to say that I'm really pleased about this because I did mention eh, last week or the week before that I was soon going to be adding full text search to GRC. Now you don't Uh, have to change of plans. (laughs) Uh, I've decided, I decided that I just can't screw around with GRC when I've got crypto link that I'm so excited to get to, you know, you and I talked about it six months ago and I've made very little headway on it. So I decided, okay, we'll use uh, this tip site, colon, grc.com space transcript space. And then whatever keywords you search Google instantly, people can find things in the podcast. And that way I don't have to go spend another six months implementing my own native search. Instead, I can get to work on crypto link that I think a lot of our listeners will care more about anyway. So that's the the plan. That's excellent. Well, you know, I I have to say, uh, Google, once Google finds its way into your page, um, they do a great job. I use Google for searching my sites. Why do your own search? You know, and I, you know, I, I use WordPress and Drupal and of course they have excellent searches, but Google does such a good job. Yep, I just use Google for it. Done is right. And many people, one of the things people complain about with uh, with podcasts, with netcasts, is their audio or video. How do you find stuff? You're so smart to have the transcripts. I think that's a. I really should do that for all the shows because then it makes a a netcast Google searchable. Right. I think it's a really, really good thing. Okay. Now read this number twelve carefully and slowly, Leo, because this is extremely cool. I think he's the amazing idea of the week award. But it's gonna our listeners are gonna have to pay attention to get this. All right. Mike's Corporation in Minneapolis wins the amazing idea of the week award. I just thought I'd write in to tell you about the enterprise security solution we use. I figured it was too esoteric to mention before, but since you brought up the use of VMware and Peter's response a couple episodes ago, I thought I'd share. In fact, our solution is just an inverted version of Peter's solution. What was what was Peter's solution? Uh, Peter's was they had everybody running in VMware. Remember, he was the developer, and his company of developers uh, were using VMware because they didn't want to have to constantly uh, put Windows uh, security patches in, which tended to break their build their their development build environment. And so the idea was they would keep the external Windows patched up and current, but then they would they would use 
a virtual machine image. And mm. when they added somebody new to the project, they just give him an image and he's instantly ready to go. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, he does the opposite, sort of upside down. Here's what, here's what he suggests. We want a virtual machine on each desktop. But st- instead of running the applications in the virtual machine and managing network security on the native machine, as Peter does, we do the reverse. We abdicate control of the real machine's network card to the virtual machine so that the native Windows system doesn't use it and can't see it. We then establish a virtual network connection between the native Windows system and the virtual machine so that all the Windows network traffic is routed through the virtual machine. Inside the virtual machine, we run OpenBSD, which is a security-hardened version of BSD Unix. So this effectively puts every Windows system on the network behind its own Unix firewall. <laughs> this is actually brilliant. It is so cool. I'm gonna. Ha- I have some questions for you about how about implementation, but I get the idea. This way, even if a rogue system were to be plugged directly into our network, oh, this is the advantage of doing it individually on each machine. There's a firewall yes. between it and every other peer on the same Ethernet segment. An open BSD firewall. The main advantage with this inverted approach is that graphic-intensive apps running on the native Windows system have no performance penalty, except for, the, of course, the RAM that's used by the virtual machine. But otherwise, they have full use Ah, of but that's where the beauty of OpenBSD comes in. He's about to talk about oh, that. Oh, we've also found some additional advantages using OpenBSD in the virtual machine instead of Windows. First of all, no additional Windows licenses are required because it's free. It's open source. And here, listen to this. The OpenBSD system can run in a virtual machine with a relatively small CPU and memory footprint, less than 32 megs. Of course, that's, you know, it's funny. I mean, that, that would be a lot a few years ago, but there's nothing on a, on a 2 gig or 3 gig machine. The network packet filtering is much more configurable than what's provided in stock Windows, and I'll, I'll, I'll vouch for that. Uh, BSD has a great uh, uh, firewall. The network admits find that bulk configuration updates are much easier for Unix-based systems than for Windows-based systems. The system can be completely locked down by the admins without any fuss. Not even the most advanced Windows power users complain they're not allowed to reconfigure the OpenBSD. Of course not. They don't want to get in there. Yeah. This is clever now, but I have some implementation questions. So so essentially, just to clarify, it's 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 exactly like a personal firewall, but you're using OpenBSD running on a Windows machine as your personal firewall. It's almost like you have a UTM for every desk. Yeah. Its own UTM yeah. because, uh, or what, however you're configuring that, that security. Now, here's my question. Okay, so, so I'm running Windows natively. I'm running all my apps natively. How do I tell my desktop Windows to go through the virtual machine for its network access? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I like that idea, but that's what you need to do, right? You have to tell yes. the Windows system, oh, no, your network isn't coming from your hardware Ethernet card. It's Some, coming from the virtual machine. Exactly. Somehow you got to get the VM to publish a, ne- a virtual network interface so that that's what the hosting Windows system can see. I have no idea how you do that. I mean, I, I don't know that you couldn't. I just never tried it before. Yeah, because normally I'm when sh- you use a VM, you're bridging your network access through Windows. Correct. The, the Windows, which has hardware access to the Ethernet, the NIC, is, is, has a network access, and it bridges it over to the virtual machine. Right. Um, he did mention in the original email, and I think 
it looks like I maybe have, have cut that off, where he said he would tell us how to do it if I want. Or he, I, that, that, that's right. He said he would tell anyone who wanted to know how to do it. And I thought, well, that's not going to work well in a question. But <laughs> I think I need to write back to him and say, okay, give. How exactly do you do this? Well, I think this uh, would be a good topic for a show is just let's talk about how to do this. In detail, yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and what I love, again, is like, you know, there are some personal firewalls that are 32 megs. I mean, oh, that yeah. take up a huge amount of RAM. And and the beauty of Unix is that it is so small. I mean, it, you know, it's running in people's routers. And this is, know? I mean, you can, the, the hardened Unix distributions are widely distributed. I mean, and you, I think OpenBSD is an extremely good choice, for, not only because you know, it's hardened and it's secure, but also it's less likely to be known by many Windows or based hackers or even Linux based hackers. It's something a little different. Um, but uh, the other thing that worries me a little bit is you still have this hardware NIC and Windows and they're sitting there right next to each other. You've really yeah, got to kind of find I, a way to keep Windows from looking at that NIC. I would think, I mean, again, I don't know what they're doing, but you can certainly unbind network interface cards from Windows. I mean, there, there is, there's still this notion of binding of oh, protocols okay. and hardware. So and maybe you can bind it, bind it directly to the, the virtual machine. Exactly. And you don't bind it to Windows. Right. So Windows just doesn't see it at all. Right. And then, and then if, the, if the VM is able to publish a virtual adapter, then that's what you bind the Windows networking protocols to. Anyway, it's, I think this was, this was so cool, very clever. We're going to find out how to do it. And I agree, Leo. I, and, well, the other thing, too, is that this could potentially, since, since now virtual machines are, I mean, not only are the virtual machine containers themselves free, especially if they've got OpenBSD in them, but, but we know, that, for example, that, you know, Windows uh, uh, virtual machine server is free. So this is potentially a 100% free solution. Yeah, or which, VMware. Which, you could use a VMware uh, player and the VMware appliance. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder what, well, that's the other thing. I'd like to know what he's using. We're going to find out. Uh, is it VMware? Is it, is it Windows, uh, uh, Microsoft's virtual machine? What did they, could they still call it virtual PC? What do they call it? I can't remember. Or, uh, virtual PC last time. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at VMware's virtual appliance marketplace and they do have open BSDs. In fact, if you go there, you can look at their, they have, uh, you know, a lot of free appliances, including a whole category of security appliances. So, I mean, there's a ton of choices there, um, including, you know, Astaro, OpenBSD with VMware Tools, uh, NetBSD, Stockade. I mean, there's a ton of commercial, and these are all free, SmoothWall. It uh, may well be that this evolved from someone using one of those and saying, hey, wait a minute, why can't we yeah, go the other unbind way. Windows from the physical container, I mean, from the physical interface and bind it to a virtual interface? Yeah. I wonder if anybody else has thought of this. Very clever idea. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Okay, you, yes, you do. You win, Mike. I don't know who Mike's corporation in Minneapolis is, but... No, he didn't say. <laughs> he probably doesn't but want anybody I, to know. But I'm going to track him down. Wow, really great. Hey, this was a long episode, but I think a really good one. We thank our uh, new sponsors, Audible.com, and we welcome back our old sponsors, Astaro.com. Both great to have you both on. Uh, and some great questioners. Thank you all for your questions. If you'd like to ask Steve questions, you can do it right on his site. GRC.com slash feedback. Feedback. I never can remember that. Of course, GRC is a place to go for SpinRite. S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E. Steve's 
bread and butter, his day job, that great hard drive maintenance and recovery utility that everybody ought to have. If you got a hard drive, you ought to have spin right. You must know that by now. You can also go there to get the 16 kilobit versions of this show. So for people who don't want to download a giant show or want to store it in somewhere you know, compactly with 130 shows, it does add up. You can get that from grc.com slash security now and also uh, Lane's transcripts. And don't forget that search tool because that's cool. You can just make that a search link that would automatically do that on your site. Yeah, that would take five weeks. <laughs> just pretend, <laughs> pretend you wrote it. Because it would have to be perfect. No, just no, Just pretend no. you wrote it and just, you know, you just, oh, I think you could do that pretty easily. But anyway, all right. We'll let, we'll let people do that. That's an assignment for, uh, for home. Your homework assignment. Hey, Steve, thank you for a wonderful episode, and we'll uh, talk to you next week on Security Now. Talk to you then, Leo. Thanks. Security Now.